Hi folks, it's Kevin. Just a brief word before the podcast begins. If you've not listened to episodes 57 through 60, I'd encourage you to do so. They are the voices of a few of my guests who were part of the 60 Scoop. This episode also includes a voice from someone who was part of the cruelty and injustice perpetrated on far too many of our First Nations people. Gary Edwards is a cultural support provider for the residential school survivors at All Nations Hope in Regina. He was born quite literally at the top of Saskatchewan and was rounded up by a gunboat and issued to a residential school in Ile St. Croix at the age of two. You are about to hear some of Gary's remarkable story. Gary paints pictures with his words. His phrasing is almost poetic as he speaks of his journey to healing, the Indigenous way of life, and the many guides who have supported him on his path. I want to paraphrase something Gary says during our conversation which really struck a chord with me and which I think sets the tone for this episode. He says, Someone is going to hear this, and what that's going to do is pass it on to someone who needs to hear it, just like a lot of teachers who have come my way knew what they were saying would make complete and utter sense in a massive therapeutic effort to someone who hasn't taken their licks yet. Let's hope that someday this conversation never happens. Oh, and one more thing. In the last few moments of this episode, Gary casually chimes in about another part of his very busy life. You won't believe how many countries this guy has visited and what he does there. Here's the podcast. You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Gary Edwards in uh, the All Nations Hope Building here in Regina. I met Gary, albeit briefly, um, at the Two-Spirit Gathering um, in Batoche last month. Uh, We were gathered under a glorious sky of stars um, for the opening ceremony of that that weekend. And I saw Gary talking to Damon Badger-Height, Sass culture, and I was just sort of observing him as he was talking. I thought, I think that's somebody that I need to get to know and to talk to. Um, you had an energy about you which suggested a fascinating story. So, um, Gary, welcome to the podcast series. Now I want to get to know all about you. So, tell me where you were born, and is that where you grew up? That's it, man. No. Uh, nice to see you again. I was born in the top of Saskatchewan. If you take the two border lines from our two provinces of Saskatchewan and Manitoba and the Northwest Territories and Nunavut, if you put that on target on the map, where those four lines meet, there's a lake called Caspar Lake, better known as the Pinyatit area to the um, Pinyatit Cree, the dialect from which I come, designates the family lineage from which I come up there. 
So on the map, if you looked at Saskatchewan in Canada, all the little red lines for the roads would go about halfway up the map and then they'd stop. Uh-huh. Do that distance again, double that distance, and you get up to the Northwest Territories border. That's where I was born. Um, I was shipped down here via Il Senqua. Um, they had a system called the Industrial Residential School System, and uh, they managed to round me up with a gunboat and issue me into a residential school in Il Senqua. How old were you when that happened? Um, I would have been just pressing two, two years of age as a toddler. Oh, my God. And uh, I was then sent to um, an interim place, and that was for 18 months, and we're still not sure where that was. Um, there was were you an only child? No, I have three brothers, and uh, between my mother and her three sisters, they had 29 children between them. Wow. Which is an average number for the North when you're out in the, out in the bush. Wow, really? And uh, were 20, you the, 21 sorry. of them made it through the residential school system. Ah. Uh, they lost a few, but they made some more. And your other two brothers? My other three brothers. Other three brothers? Yeah, are still up in Casbah Lake. They've never left. But they didn't, they weren't taken to the residential schools? Uh, two of them were taken. Two of them. But two different residential schools to Flinflon. And uh, they subsequently got out, they wriggled away, and uh, made it some 4,000 kilometers back home. I don't even pretend to understand what this feels like or looks like, so I'm relying on you to paint a picture. Um, when, when you're taken away at the age of two, mm-hmm. how aware is your family that that's happening and... Do you get a say in the matter? Um, totally unawares. They had no awareness of what was going on. I would imagine, to say very least, none of the people in that region had ever seen a gunboat before, had ever heard an engine of, of a motorized running 60-watt engine on the back of an aluminum boat. Very much a military vehicle, and uh, none of them would have seen or heard any plastic metal solenoid from an engine smelled gas before, nothing like that. Totally mm. foreign to them. So they wouldn't have reacted as you do when you would b- know what's happening. If you know the tenure that's going on around you, if there's a sound of a siren in a city, you respond. Most people freeze up. They wonder what they've done wrong. Yeah. If they're involved, what's going to go on? They, they hit a state of emergency. When you don't wreck, if you've never heard that sound before, it might be curious. Mm. But it wouldn't get you sitting up straight in your chair mm-hmm. trying to notice what your place in society was immediately at all. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't recognize it. You'd be like a child hearing it for the first time. You'd be, be sort of odd. But uh, but they didn't have to ask anybody's permission to take you? Oh, no. There was absolutely no permission asked at the beginning of the residential school system. Um, it well, was an effort by the church, churches across Canada, especially when you get into the north past the 49th parallel, which is right up by, just above Flinflon, you know, on the eastern, western side of the provinces, Lloydminster and Flinflon are fairly balanced. They're joined in by the Churchill River system that goes across um, east to eastern Manitoba, across to James Bay in Hudson's mm-hmm. Bay. So about that level, when you get above the Churchill River system, there's no roads, there's no vehicles. Now there is, but then, no, there would have been absolutely nothing. There was a remote effort at putting Uranium City in in the late 60s, early 70s, which resulted in 
mercury poisoning for every river in Saskatchewan due to the live silver and plutonium they brought out right. that was non-filtered that leached into every single thing and subsequently brought on diabetes in 80% of the O-type blood mm-hmm. natives above the Churchill River system, right mm-hmm. up to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Some say it was a tactical effort mm-hmm. to bring down the health and immunity of those people to test them. But, I digress, the, uh, the portion of effort that was done in the late 60s, mid-60s to late 60s, mirrored the late 50s to early 50s, mirrored the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, the 10s, right back to 1760, as far as I'm told, hmm. by not the colonial system of recording who went to residential school, by our great-grandfathers who tell us their history as they recorded it, how many kids went away and how many came back. I've heard many people say lots of numbers, but when you talk in a traditional sense, you know, eight-tenths, eight out of ten kids went and never came back, were never heard from again. Now, that doesn't mean they got through residential school, learned how to be a short-haired English-speaking person in an industrial sense in an agriculture area, doing agriculture as an agricultural family on the reserve. They didn't survive it. So my family was split in three of us were taken by gunboat. Um, We were then split. As I was a tiny toddler, my brothers were slightly older. Um, They went to a school in Funfon. I was taken to Ile Saint-Croix, which was the annex of Sandy Bay, which is now a larger reserve where they gather gather a lot of Native people around there, a lot of Cree. And my other brother, um, he got essentially left alone. He got taken by the gunboat, and as the day went on, the week went on, where there were seven to ten days in our area, streaming across most of the lakes, just finding random native families and taking their children, um, he got forgotten on a bank somewhere. He managed to stand still as a tree. And there was so much confusion going on with them getting other kids in their gunboat and taking them back to point B, going out from point A. Yeah, he just got forgotten got left on a bank somewhere and wandered wandered a couple days home and showed up and my parents sort of looked at him like what happened? Where did you go? It wasn't as though we would think of it like a toddler in a family in a cabin out in the frontier. It's not that. These are people living in lodges in wigwames and tipis that are living on the land. I guess on the land is the best way to put it Mm -hmm. or off the grid however. Right, yeah, right. But they're very much living in a traditional way which is completely and utterly different than surviving in a modern sense. There's a very, very large split between those two things. And they each have different qualities that go into them that define them for what they are. Did your parents wonder where you were? Um, after a while, there's no one to ask, for one thing. Okay. Um, there's no one to ask in your language. Uh-huh. So there, there was concern there, but uh-huh. just imagine no one to ask. Uh-huh. If if something goes missing in a city, you have avenues to find my phone, find yeah, my kid, yeah, yeah, child yeah. find, yeah. murdered and missing women, a hundred Aboriginal-based sources by which to canvas and look, locate, hopefully, by a grid system, by a strategy to find that object or person or thing. In the forest, you're basically using your own medicine to find your children. And it wasn't above that. They didn't think, look, this big metal boat 
worth of white people has come and taken my children. They thought all the other things, a bear, a badger, a wolf. Oh. Has, it, it's very much normal if you stray from the pack, so to speak. Uh-huh. Just as many animals as humans take up there for their food is as many humans as animals take. Uh-huh. It's not a tit for tat. There's no competition. But it, on average, it happens. You know, it's a regular occurrence. It's not something to fear. But when you're living in the outdoors in forests... It's not quite often, but it's average children. People of ill health will be taken by a lot of animals because first, those animals have an instinctual recognition on the fact that children are helpless for one thing. But that instinct in an animal tells them they're also early in their game. They not have not yet developed the seed to become a procreating man mm. or the, the method to become a, a birthing female of the of the tribe, so to speak. They sense that as animals. They have absolutely no problem. There's no mix-up in that. But they also sense people who are of, of a, a disease, of, of a disease to the point where their system is failing, their immune system will eventually give way. Mm. Animals can sense that very easily. Much like when you see, when a human will see an animal with a, a, a elk with a broken leg, You'll see that as wander by. You'll see the dexterity, and you'll see obviously something that is having more increased difficulty in its movement. Will most likely lag behind. Will most likely not get to the elevated meadows to feed on really, really rich, good protein grass and roots. It'll probably have to stay in the lower meadows where there's lots of grass, but with lower protein. And eventually, will come to some disease that will affect its ability to survive. The, the way. People I find interpret this life that we're living in a box society where we're neck and neck with one another, but we've never met one another before. We live a foot away from people in houses, but we rarely talk. We might look at one another and, and suppose a lot, but it's it's not a communal existence. It's not it's not a sharing circle. It, there's there's a lack of strength, if anything, it's sort of stuck in the midst of it, like being in a parking lot, all in each other's cars with the windows up. Hmm. In more uh, circular society of living, there's not only people that are living out in the bush as small groups of people. They've always been below the number of 25 because that's how much, like we learn from the animals, that's how much you can really uh, support. Right. Not support in an amazing way with great health and amazing riches. That's how much you can carry when you need to move. Right. That's, that's how much you can move out when your youngers get to 21 years of age and you take care of their elders and that cycle is happening. And that's very much, quote, a lifestyle. I see the survival system all around me. I definitely know the difference of coming from living into a system of survival. We're constantly utilizing tactics to survive. We're taught those tactics and we're taught that they're necessary to use as a strategy to, to cope with what's going on around us. In a living sense, you're invited to live. You're invited to come into the forest. The invitation of what's there on the ground. Most of the people you will speak to up there that is living and recognizes that living sense know full well that you have everything around you to get through any coping you'll need to do. Mm-hmm. Every medicine you need is on the ground. All the fresh water you need is up there. Everything you'll need to pick your level of living. But first off, with traditional people of a First Nations environment, that is in a living sense is the consistent 
giving system before you're taking anything. You're, you're giving a massive amount of things that will take you past your rate of intake. If people take a moose for four families, they will first take a third of that moose and give it to the land and give it to the animals. That Those predators that they know are hunting the same thing, they won't just take it and keep it all, every mm-hmm. single stitch of it, and keep it from those animals. They will first, above everything, take a leg off that moose, take a, take a portion of it, really, really good meat, excellent meat, and give it to the other tribe that's around them, the, the larger group of wolves that now there's an excess in in the north, but that will have a, a whole company of wolves that will be living in a den area that will be knowing their food sources. When the humans come and take their food sources by luck, it's not that they let them go with that. They will follow it because that was their food source that's now wandering away in a truck going 60 miles an hour down to a little encampment, getting in a boat, and then leaving. They'll make an effort to eye that up, because that's their children that count on that food. Native trappers and hunters definitely recognize that, and they will give a third of their their catch, a third of their go, even if it means them not surviving the winter, or surviving a whole summer. Even if their children, they know, will get sick without that amount of food, they will give it up to... The, the predators next to them, their larger family of predators from which they come, just to off-balance their fortune in the future of being able to find more moose right. cycle after cycle, right. much like the wolves will take their predatory system and apply it to a group, a herd of elk, a herd of moose, a herd of deer, whatever's around them, and they won't take all of them. They could. Mm-hmm. With the numbers that are around in the north right now, they could comb mm-hmm. the whole area and eat everything down to nothing. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that does that is humans. Right. And the results of that are a survival result. The results of survival are on a survival scale. They're uh, scarcity of food, scarcity of kinship, a scarcity of knowing, a scarf- scarcity of passing lessons, passing important lessons that can't be written down. They're, they're life lessons. They're, they're nothing you can teach a person. You can't Google them on a yeah, right. internet system of, uh, don't get me wrong, I definitely respect sources of information for what they are mm-hmm. and the intelligence that's gone into centuries of working that out for whatever system informs you of that. But everyone soon figures out it's not about what you think you can do, it's what about you can do. And if you ask yourself, what can I do? There's a lot we can do here when you have money in your pocket, when you have a vehicle to use, when you have water coming out of the tap, when you have a system that will take away your gray water, all 40 liters that we use in a day for nothing but hauling our fecal matter away. But when that's gone, you'll have a reminder of what you cannot do. In nature, if you ask yourself, if you're standing in the bush and you ask yourself what you can do, you're already too late. You're already behind something that knows exactly what it can do. And it will have already gotten your game. I've already gotten the nice fresh water. I've already gotten up early enough to be the bird that catches the worm, so to speak. Right. In, in a system of survival, it's very rare that you ask yourself what you can do and keep that to yourself as well. What you want to do is find other kinships that will take kindness and turn it into a weakness, that will take advantage of that situation so you can get the upper hand. When you're living in nature, you have absolutely no capability of doing that. Hmm. It's rare that you 
can step outside yourself. You can put up as many trap lines as you like across the land. But that doesn't mean that if you have one trap line that you get 15 articles a game on in six months. That's one thing. If you have five trap lines getting 15 articles a game for that same six-month period, that's amazing. But you're still one person having to skin, bone, joint, replace, hang, tan, divide, and find some time in there to hunt and eat more. Right. So you need a group of people doing that. You need a, a system that you'll feel the benefits of that living system within. A survival system rarely allows the greater part of everyone down to the last person to feel the benefits of, quote, the good kill. Now, a lot of what I'm saying, you'll be hearing for the English definition of that in English, but there's a different definition that I heard just lately of a good kill. Now, giving of life and death is completely different for people that are living on the land. It doesn't mean that you're dying on the land or living on the land. It means you're doing both at the same time. It's, it's a complete and utter balance. The older you grow is the closer you get to the next fire, we say. You're, you're edging away from one fire as a metaphor at the beginning of your life, and you're going towards the next. Mm. There's a circle that you're walking, and it walks, it rotunds around an amazingly complex system called the beauty ways. The beauty ways, if you break down the first lesson of the beauty ways, it's what people recognize as the medicine wheel. Now with its four colors and a circle to go around it, um, it concentrates on the very much the fundamental lessons for Native children, very, very young children, three to four years of age, will be taught the color denomination of those four quarters, their seasonal development, the registration of the years that are passing by as they walk that circle, so to speak, um, the cardinal flower, the cardinal plant, the cardinal animal of every one of those four districts, and the function of coming into the beginning of your life, which is uh, emotional quarter. When you grow out of that, you grow into the physical part of your life. You start actually growing. And then you come into your mental, which is you, you've, you've done your growing, you've done your emotional development. Now you need to think over what you're going to do with all that. You need to work out the, the pieces of it. And then after that, you get into the spirit quarter at the, quote, the end of the circle, so to speak. And uh, that's when your spirit takes over, when the rest is all balanced out. As we come from a society that would take that as a priority, having all four quarters balanced, I guess the image would be a plate spinning on a sharp stick that you may see in circuses or etc., where there's many, many sharp sticks with many white plates, and the, the artist, the presenter is spinning those plates as fast as possible to keep them balanced keep them keep them moving. right right and when they slow down they begin to wobble like a like a bent record um the difference with a survival model and the that medicine wheel spinning on that is that very sharp pole that it's sitting on with its centrifugal force spinning on that plate is your center as a human being in the center of those four directions the center of that circle where the two lines cross that is where you must remember you're coming from and where you're going to. And in a greater sense, it represents the center of our Earth. Knowing where the center of the Earth is, knowing where your gravity point is, is pretty much on board when it comes to someone living in nature. In the survival system, we stray away from that model often, and we seem to gravitate towards things we think are the center of our lives. 
when really they have nothing to do with the center of our lives. Mm. I want to ask you about residential school. How long were you in that system? Um, I was in that system until I was just uh, six and a half years of age. I was brought down from Ile Saint Croix to a place called Duck Lake, um, and then after Duck Lake, brought down to Labret out in the Capel Valley, and then transited from Labret after eighteen months um, into an adoptive family. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So from two... Two, basically, to six and a half? Yep, six and a half or seven Pretty years. Pretty formative of years. Um, I can honestly tell you they were confusing years. Um, I guess you may have heard stories in other interviews about people coming literally from the forest going to the city. Yeah. Maybe the advantage I had is that I was so young that everything was play still. Right. I'd, I'd not been able to formulate ideas that was beyond play. When you're when you're a toddler, that's what you do. Everything's play. Yeah. And as you get a little bit older into your not so toddler, not so kid yet. Style, yeah, yeah. All you're doing is you're you're formatting your play to imitate what you're seeing from adults around you. Right. You format war games because you see them in conflict. Right. You format uh, kissing and hugging because you see their love. You format. Babble because you're seeing them communicate on very serious subjects and communicate directly as as adults. You formulate a, a sense of a higher power, something bigger than us, because you obviously see them praying. You see them in in a prayer state. You see them worshiping other things, exhibiting a sense that there's something larger around us. But when I got to Labret, um, uh, the what began as residential school system was then turning into what they call the 60s scoop, what they call, mm-hmm. um, it changed forms. It went from a residential school system to a industrial school system. And then it turned into a day school system. And then it turned into the part of the 60s scoop that I wish I could say that that 60s scoop has stopped, but the percentages in the newspaper that I heard the other day and quoted from Dean affairs was that, you know, those numbers are still there. 80, yes. 85% of Manitoba's uh, children in care are Aboriginal. And I think the report I heard, not to quote me on this, not that it matters to this anyways, but it was that over 2,000 children had repeatedly left their adoptive homes or, or care homes and had been rounded up again only to come back and do it again. So the question really isn't maybe the numbers or the origin of the people or who those people are. 
it's what makes a child want to run away that bad. Mm. That to me is not a gravitational place where they know their center any mm. longer. Mm. I tried to run away many times. Yes, I was going to ask you, what was your adoptive family like? Uh, my adoptive family um, is absolutely stellar people. They are very much warm and understanding humans that I think, although I've never really asked them point blank, I, I think it would be sort of an insult to them in some ways to say, why did you do this? Uh. I've, I've learned that at the time, I may look at it differently, but at the time, this was the late 60s, early 70s in the world that we know very little about. So you have good memories then of, of your adoptive family growth. I definitely have beneficial, absolutely glorious and beneficial memories of my adoptive years here in Saskatchewan and Regina, for sure. But then you mentioned running away. Oh, not from them. Not from them. Okay. No, I'm definitely in saying that during the residential school okay. system, during that industrial training, the system was in the early 40s and 50s, you'd be trained for an industrial school. When you'd get out of a residential school, for example, I'll use Regina here, you would be coming from the Brett, which would teach you formative ways to be an agriculturalist, be able to live on the reserve and be a farmer. Or you'd get the option to learn, uh, like high school has home ec now and shop tech. Right. Uh, they teach you the beginnings to a trade. They would develop a massive trade and then ship the students, the Aboriginal students, not back to the reserve. They'd ship them into Regina to the any number of factories around here that are the large red brick buildings that you'll see around here. One mm -hmm. of them is Broad Street and 8th, which would have been the John Deere tractor factory. Mm. Basically, I'm getting at the fact that once you're trained to residential school and you have such a heaving spirit that has absolutely no self-respect for it and you've been traumatized to the point where you're completely numb you have no idea of your origins and you're caught between worlds you you hear about native people in the reserve but you can't speak their language to them you hear about some family lineage that's the greatest network across north america but you've been divided from that you come into a society where you're not like those people in appearance or action of course you become a free slave Industrial. Your adoptive family was white. The industrial school system uh, paved the way for residential school kids to come into working for absolutely nothing with no tax number or political representation at all, not being part of Indian Affairs, not being part of the reserve, and not being part of this world, not knowing who they were meant you didn't have to pay them. So it was a big... You could only imagine the numbers of people that would have worked in these industrial places for years and how hard they would have had to work because they would have had no scope of pay or, or leniency or they were giving them nothing. It wasn't that they were working and getting home, getting a reserve, getting a this, getting a car, getting money. They were getting nothing. They were getting very meager food to eat and that would have been it. Now that turned into what they called the day school system where the reserves and the church started to sort of argue. People started to figure out in late 50s, early 60s, what was actually going on in those schools. And it was nothing to shout about. It was absolutely really terrible, awful, in fact. But as that news started to get out into the fiber of people, there were, there were definite outcries. There were laws being made. There were, there were people finding out that you, there was just terror going on to, to children. The most evil things were going on. But, when the day school system came, those kids weren't allowed to stay overnight at the residential schools any longer. That's why they became, quote, day schools. You'd go for the day, 
and be headed back to the res during the evenings. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Did you know that all episodes of Sascapes can be downloaded or streamed for free? You can find us in the iTunes Store, on Stitcher Radio, and at iHeartCulture.ca. And I'm so excited to announce that Sascapes now has its own app for both Apple and Android devices. Head over to the App Store or Google Play and have Sascapes at your fingertips with just one easy tap. Remember, we love hearing from you with your feedback in the review section. And now, back to the podcast. But it, to, to catch up on my adoptive family, my adoptive family are white people for sure. Yeah, they but are. you didn't go to day school once you were adopted out. No, you, I. Uh, you I were was, integrated into regular school. I system. was integrated into regular school. I was um I was thrown right in there, so to speak. And I would love to say that that is supposed to be the happy part of the tale. But my elementary school and high school were definitely just as severe as the residential schools I was in. You were um, seen as different. Oh, there weren't many native people in the south part of Regina going right. to any where you where you are now, which is First Avenue, and we're on Fourth Avenue North, Fifth Avenue. Yeah. This was the side across the tracks that housed all of the northern people, Métis, First Nations, newcomers. Uh, at, at the time, growing up in the South End was very very difficult. I reckon I saw three people between the ages of seven and seventeen, three or four people of full full-blood native descent from Neheo people in the south end of Regina, being in a high school full of 2,499 other students and one of me, well, it only meant sort of one thing. I'm not saying there weren't other cultures in there. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the only brown face. There were many. Mm-hmm. But I am saying that there were two native people that I picked up on through the whole of high school. And if it's the formative years during elementary school, I definitely credit from, you know, the, the early grade school up to grade 8, where we left, quote, grade school, elementary school, and then middle school, I guess you call it, grades 8 to 10, um, are the beginning of high school here in Regina. So grades 4 to 8, those four years. I managed to go to a elementary school that... The principal of that school, his name was Bud McNeil. He's just passed a couple years ago. He was a very admirable person. He, he was very much a, a he's very much influenced my life on how to act and how to be, because he was very familiar with another of my mentors, which is Chief Dan George, mm. and the whole George family. Mm. Um, those two pillars of my life, that balance of seeing Bud McNeil as as basically the white guy with the big white mustache, but I learned later in life had been a total pillar to making what we call the four directions system here. Um, the four directions health unit, um, the circle project, a lot of the things that involved real, real native people when native education was needed the most, Bud McNeil definitely stood up and, and tried as hard as he could to get those mechanisms in and was in cooperative cooperation with lots of traditional families and, when he saw me coming into elementary school, he looked around our neighborhood, and uh, I wasn't hard to not miss type thing. I was definitely a sore thumb. And uh, instead of looking at me and keeping me on the outside, he definitely gravitated to me immediately, like immediately, right away, and basically told my adoptive parents, all right, I got this. 
I know, you know, trust me on this one. This will go well. And he really worked with them to mm. do whatever geometry dynamic he could to not protect me at all. He put me right in the center of everything. Mm -hmm. But every year he would ship over someone from Uganda, someone from Guatemala, someone from Peru, someone from Uzbekistan. Mm -hmm. And he'd bring them up every every couple of weeks. We would have our, uh, at the end of every week, we'd have our uh, um, cl class gathering. The whole school would gather the in. The assembly, that. yeah. Exactly, the assembly. Bud McNeil would bring up the same people all the time and highlight them. For weeks, not just once, for weeks, he would say, here is Mr. Mafumbe, who's still from Uganda. He hasn't changed, although he saw him right. last week. He's still playing the bongos for you, and I'm going to ask him to do it again. And I never really understood why that was, why he'd bring us up in front of the assembly to show us at length many, many weeks in a row, and then keep going months and months and months of the same qualities of the same people. Were you one of those people that he brought up, even um, though at, you were a child? At, at one of at one of the particular assemblies, he did bring me up, but it was to highlight the next native girl who was coming in. He was ah, basically okay. showing there's two of these people. Did you feel a sense of of somehow the only word I can think of is is relief? And I mean, if if those years were just filled with bad memory did you feel like did that give you a modicum of of self-esteem uh, standing in front of the the assembly and having another first nations person come there and join you did you feel like aha i'm not as strange as you think i am it, it had sure been a long time since i'd spoken Cree with someone right and, and getting a proper greeting from right you know, someone my own age was, your, was nice to hear your cool factor must have gone up um I don't know if it was maybe a cool factor, but I'm definitely not alone here now. And right. it wasn't in just her and I in our presence. It was Bud McNeil standing behind us waiting for that moment. Right. He what was, a great he man. He was definitely someone who very much understood the distances between people. And, you know, he, he, he'd known the concepts of traditional Native people because he couldn't have organized a school an elementary school of brand new families with little kids all in, quote, the south on the nice end of Regina. He couldn't have done that without knowing a little bit about really meeting people, not just reading about it from a book or being on a couple boards that sit in somewhere. No, he was definitely someone who had been on ground. I'd suspect he'd probably come from a rural community. Mm -hmm. And in his years, at the age he was at when I met him as a kid, must have seen the last of native people as they were around there as a child i suspect it's it's often that i meet people who are now 80 90 years of age and as children their parents would tell them you know when we moved out to the farm here there were teepees over there every spring every april there'd be a family that came here and set their teepee up and would live off the land they had horses and a cart and that's that's what they were doing they'd gypsy around and that would have been the last of sort of i wouldn't like to say a dying breed but maybe an era of transition, an era of where the most wholesome people became the most outcast when native people turned into gypsies in Canada. What year are we in at this point? Put it this way. I would say if you were to take uh, someone that would have been mm, like a young person between 10 and 15 and say the mid-30s, early 40s, yep, they would have seen their parents and uncles and aunts go off to war 
They would have seen all the guys leave, and all of a sudden they would have grown up with all of their aunties around them. In that white society aspect of Canada going to war, all of a sudden there's a bunch of women, and that's it in these small towns, especially in the north of all the provinces. Well, of course, traditional Native society being a matriarchal society, that would have invited more Native people to hang out at their houses. They would have approached them in the backyard and said, wow, you're all, you're all ladies. Good, I can totally relate to that. That's, that's how we're trained. It's always the aunties that train, yeah. instruct, nurture, etc. The men are out doing things. They have a different time to instruct and different instructions to give in traditional Native societies. Um, the other thing that may have influenced my aspect of Bud McNeil and how he seemed to be an, an unknown uncle of mine is that one thing you'll know about traditional native folks is the dynamic that goes into a family is your parents have you as their mother and father. But to you, the lessons that you'll get are none of your life decisions will be made by your parents, not one. They will all be made by your aunties and uncles. Mm-hmm. Every single one of your important things. What you should do, what career path, what medicine channel, should you become a hunter, should you develop this, should you shoot bow and arrow, should you carve, should you carve knives, should you get into a certain type of uh, dance variable when your dancing years come, what hand drum you're going to make, what your animal familiar is, what, what you're most negotiable on, what your high points are, what you're, what you're fluid at. Your parents don't decide any of that for you. They don't even speak it to you. So there's not this family center that has the four squares of the two kids, the the female, the boy and the girl for the mother and the father, and that whole square geometry to the family that, mm. by and large these days, is really hard to work out in the survival system. Very difficult to work out and mm-hmm. very rarely satisfies what it's made to do, what it's created to do. Because it's created to make those two little, that boy and that girl, that brother and their sister, to mirror their parents and be a better taxpayer taxpayer than their parents were in a traditional native society your aunties and your uncles give you a real picture of who your parents are because that's their brothers and sisters when you come to your parents and say so you're my pillar of my dad you don't do anything wrong you're my superhero you're like i hold you above everything you're my you're my superman in all these different ways you're perfect uncle comes along and says what (laughs) are you crazy when we were your age, because he was once your age, he looked exactly like you too. When we were your age, you wouldn't believe what he did. He used to eat the candles off the cake. He never ate the cake. He liked the wax. <laughs> or auntie will come along and say, you're talking about my brother? Uh-huh. But you're my auntie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But get this, kid. That's my little brother. Right. When he was your age, he used to do some awful things. Right. He was impossible. Compared to you, he was impossible. He'd put his fingers where they were never supposed to be. He'd lick the freaking windows and the walls. He'd eat things, just pick them up and eat them. And that gives you a real version. Well, that's that knocking your, your pillar down. <laughs> your, your parents will rarely ever be able to tell you because yeah. they know in that family dynamic, they can't be that. They can't say, you know, when I was right. 17, I was getting juiced, man. When I was your age at 16, we were going crazy. We'd be arrested every weekend. Right. But their, their parents, your grandparents, will go, you want to hear about your dad? Let me tell you. So your aunties, your uncles, and your grandparents really give another human side to who your parents are. And that, to me, stands up as a reality, as opposed to the picture you're told to think and devise about your parents. 
you get you get the reality from their brothers and sisters, the honest truth about them. So you form a picture that says, those aren't my greatest teachers. Every one of these teachers around me has value to teach me. They they have something to bring out in me. And that's that's what I recognized in Bud McNeil. And it wasn't just me he did that for, but I think he really took that little native kid under his under his wing because he knew what we'd been through. He was very, very aware that the system that we'd gone through wasn't there was there was something innately wrong, very, very wrong with the origins of it. But he also told me by the time I was, you know, he basically said, by the time you start work, and I know you'll do this work with kids, by the time you start working with kids, you're going to tell them a different story. When you first went back to your um, roots, when you, when you went back home, mm-hmm. well, how old were you when that happened? I was the first year in elementary school. I was eight. I've been back every year of my life since. Once a year. Since you were eight? Yeah. Oh, so you weren't disconnected for a huge number of years. I was disconnected enough for a huge number of years because of distance more than anything. Had my little legs been able to carry me back, right. I definitely would have been able to. Did you want back. to stay? Uh, we had no choice. Okay. Um, the essence of the residential school years that we survived to, were basis you know, to know the difference between living and surviving. It was true survival. There was lots of um, very, very harsh treatment being, you know, um, systematically raped and tortured on a regular schedule when it's men and women treating toddlers and young children like that. There's absolutely no protection you have whatsoever. They're, They're... Even you might have the strongest will in the world, but your physical size won't protect you from anything that's happening. And if you've got a regiment, you're learning of having to stay indoors at all times and learn time itself. You know, there's huge displacements that would happen between quite large sex rings that were found out between many, many of the residential schools, especially in the north, because there was nobody to police them at all. There was no nobody coming out to check on them. There was someone delivering food to the local town, and then they just chuck it way out to these distant schools. Um, you know, time displacement's a funny thing when you get pushed past your point of fatigued pain. When your pain levels have reached a certain extent, you pass out. That's what your mind says to your body. When pain receptors fill you completely, where your body and your mind are not getting along, they're overwhelmed, your brain will shut off your body completely, you'll faint, you'll black out. So you won't have to receive that amount of nerve message any longer. Um, when you do so, to, to be awakened in another position, in another place, is quite shocking to begin with. But time displacement is one thing. Displacement itself, not knowing where, you're, where you are, is another thing. Did you feel displaced? Oh, definitely. Uh, dis- displaced is a good way to put it, but... You know, when you get beaten into submission, first of all, and then you wake up in a very compromising position um, in more pain and then keep passing out because you're right at the, you know, yellow to orange to red zone of your pain level. You're right in the high district of that pain level. So you're just going to experience a little more pain and then pass out. If you're definitely not eating in that time, your body has nothing to propel itself. You can feel your immune system shrinking. 
can feel yourself getting close to the doorway, so to speak. Are you telling me that that was your experience in residential school? Oh, yeah. And you're old enough at that point to remember it. Um, there's nothing like that that you can forget. Right. I would love to forget all about it. I would Some love people to, block it. I would love to express it. I, I went through a couple years of trying to wish those things away, but the medicine people that we have on my circle, right. I'm actually from in the north, they, they, won't, they wouldn't have it. They said, whatever's going on in your life needs to be put in a balance. And when it gets out of balance, it's never going to cure itself. You're never going to recover from that. But if you keep it in balance, in a reality that's something you can cope with, it'll work itself out. You'll get over it. You'll be able to adapt that as part of your life. When you went back once a year, mm -hmm. how long would you be able to stay for? It depends. I was usually let off for, you know, summer holidays would be two and a half months. I could sometimes fix it for maybe two and a half to three months during the summer and then six or eight weeks during the winter. And I'd have to interchange before, you know, to inform the people around me that that's what I'd be doing. I'd be coming up for the winter or I'd be coming for summer. Each system of ceremonies we have up north is conducive to those times, and I'd go up for ceremony with my family. Okay. And your adoptive family was mm -hmm. totally cool with that. Um, I don't think I ever really discussed how cool they were with it, so to speak. They were very aware of their role in it, and... They definitely didn't have any questions okay. about how that was to be executed. They were very much, you know, I'm not someone to pinpoint my elders and ask what they're up to. In traditional society, you never ask your elders okay. what's going on. You're never fascinated about why it's happening. You okay. never stop at that. You just accept what they're giving to you and carry on because it must have been a lot of creative source, a lot of energy to get that even on your plate in front of you. So... You know, there were very, very few questions about how this came together. They were I'm just hoping my, my, my conversation with you isn't asking questions that normally one should not ask, one should just accept. Put it this way. Um, all of the questions that I've been asked about my life are to speak to someone who's not here yet. Okay. I've been past these lessons. The reason that you and I are talking is because someone's going to hear this. Yes. And what that's going to do is pass it on to somebody who needs to hear it. Just okay. like I needed to hear Chief Dan George's words and Bud McNeil's words. And a lot of the teachers that had come my way, they, they knew what they were saying would make no sense to some, but they knew what they were saying would make complete and utter sense in a massive therapeutic effort to someone that isn't, hasn't taken their licks yet, hasn't right. hit the road yet. Right, right, right. That formulation of factors. Let's hope someday that these conversations never happen again. Let's hope that there won't be a s group of people in what we know as Turtle Island in Canada with these stories about misuse and abuse. And one of the key points that many, many of my teachers have said to me again and again, they said, when I turn 44, um, when I get to my spin on the medicine wheel that takes up all four quarters, when I finally get to the north, the top quarter, um, it'll be about the time that the people around me need another language to express what they're going through. The languages that they're using, economics, biology, physiology, ecology, won't express what they're going through. They'll need to find a language of the land to 
develop their relationship with the land to the next level that we need now as a, a human source. And that gets back to creating our kinship. One of those stable points I've taken with me always is that beyond everything else, beyond the differences and, and appearances and stark dissimilarities between us, you can see it like similarities bring us together as groups of people. There's mm -hmm. these similar people over here. Mm -hmm. But it's always the differences within those similar groups, within that number of similar people, that start making different people. And they make up their next group. It's our differences that strengthen us. You can see it in people. You can see our similarities will be what brings us together, but our differences in there is what makes us strong. That's what traditional Nehio people think about one another. They celebrate their uniqueness. They see their similarities, their kinship, and then they work from there to develop why that kinship is so strong. Much like the sweetgrass braid that's laying on the table in front of you, one of the lessons that we're taught that, you know, doesn't take long for entire seafaring nations to take on for the rest of the world is that one strand of grass is very weak. But when you braid that grass together in many strands, it becomes very, very strong. That's the symbol of that teaching that comes with our four directions. Hmm. And that's the thing that, when you describe it in English, makes a lot of sense. It's a very simple, easy description. In Neheo, it's, it's a whole massive, like, university-level teaching that goes with every single strand that goes in there and the origins of it and the chlorophyll that makes it grow and how buffalo reed is different than sweetgrass and the season that it grows in and what grows around it as its topical medicine that assists it when you pick sweetgrass you can burn it for many many spiritual purposes but it also is complemented by hundreds of other different types of deciduous plants that grow on the ground right around it always everywhere it grows is many medicines that you can combine to take care of many conditions from disease, physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional. Mm. It's those type of lessons that I've definitely had to, uh, had to see the reason to keep and keep around me. What are you, uh, what's happening on culture days with you guys? Culture Days is the second annual Buffalo Feast, and we are celebrating the fact that in Regina here, which is the center of the RCMP in Canada, um, people think that CSIS, our, um, our Canadian CIA, if you will, if you were to compare it to the United States, is in Langley, Virginia, their big headquarters for their supermind. Our supermind for CSIS, as it were, in Canada is here in Regina. And that's because at our local RCMP constabulatory here, that is where every fed federal agent that's ever had boots on, hit the horse, had the little hat on, had the red tunic, blown a whistle, made a charge, done anything to do to represent the federal government of Canada as an authoritary figure, as an RCMP. Every single one of them has graduated from that building a quarter of a kilometer over there. Every single one of them has ever hit the ground in North America. One of the last medicine people who was tasked with coming to Regina was tasked to follow the last buffalo herd that was left. And they were trying to protect them. They were trying to herd them away from danger. And there was danger in every, every region. So they kept them out in the Capel Valley. And when they, those buffalo finally needed to go for more grass, the obviously constabulatory here made really nice, beautiful grass for their horses. And at the time, it was, you know, not so popular to have a benefit of 
nice green, luscious, sweet grass mm. growing around. Anyways, they managed to herd in these buffaloes and kick the herd out. And the effect was outside the fort that used to be at the RCMP barracks. Um, they took the last large female buffalo and, you know, in, in, in her mass and splayed the carcass open, put it outside the gates of the fort. And of course, all the native people around from far and wide came to, they realized it was the last one. Of course, half of them were coming to eat it. As they were told to, we're going to have a feast today. Well, as soon as the people came to eat it, guards stood around it, let the flies gather, and the carcass was made to rot for several days in front of thousands of people coming around to see it. The message of the government through that was, you need to know this is it. You will change. This is done now. You're not allowed to carry on these ceremonies. This, this whole picture you have of these mm. beasts it goes, we're getting cows, mm. we're getting horses, we're getting agriculture. You need to leave this behind you. It was, a, it was a heathen way that doesn't matter anymore. They're not even here anymore. Look around you. Mm. Well, that's by no means any reason to let go of the relationship that you've had for 30,000, 40,000 years. Right. Billions of them kept millions of people alive in a, in a harmonious way, in a, in a very util, utilitarian way where all of that beast would be used for housing and clothing and life. In essence, we mean to have the RCMPs accept a plaque for their modern RCMPness to show up. And create some kinship back again mm. in sitting down and eating with us again. Mm. I was in fact I was in the afternoon in this very room with the with the head of the RCMP and last year everything went uh, on our beginning year it all went a bit fast it's it's all a bit of a structural change because it it brings in a lot of deep tradition and people have many many sides to it we, we had a good turnout but this year we're having a very very good turnout because it needs one year to test itself whenever you it's very much a traditional ceremony angle to it in a sort of modern way and our elders around the treaty four area will look at it like it, it might have a chance. I'm not going to jump in there with these guys because I've never really seen it done this way. And it's a big energy they're pulling. It's big medicine. Mm -hmm. But last year went very well. Um, we had those natural symbols, much like we went through you and I in Batosh, mm -hmm. with when you cast medicine on the prairies in a medicine place, nature answers. And in the beginning of the morning, it was you know a full tornado that came and blew all mm -hmm. of our tents to pieces. It was driving mm -hmm. sheer rain on a straight you know horizontal yeah. angle. For three hours, the place got soaked. We got rinsed right out. But by noon, it was 35 degrees. Mm -hmm. And uh, we roasted our elders that day with yeah. cooking them. The origin to this ceremony is mm. that it's time to honor those things that we had as the most primary right. ownership. There's a story that goes with this that is, is very much the basis of the tradition of the prairies, the medicine line, we call it. And within that medicine line is a prophecy of four deliveries of the sides of nature that would keep us going. And one was the white buffalo calf woman and the story that goes with that. But maybe I'll get into it another time. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be a real pleasure to have you there on the 25th I to witness and, and to. eat some, eat some Pascua Mostos, the, the, the origin of life, the bison, which the it used, bison. To, be, it used yeah, to be known yeah. here yeah. In, in, in that light, not yeah. an animal, a herd animal, all of the ways Nat Geo puts it. But the fascinating qualities about its natural state. Right. It was life for the people of this entire continent. And the RCMP will be there? 
OCB will be there. We will present them a plaque with some of the pictures of some of our leaders Lovely. of the local Treaty 4 area on a plaque. That picture itself is in the hopes that we can reinstill when we go into buildings, we see the apology from the Canadian government in glass, that is, is in this room, in banks and office buildings and corporate right. areas where it's usually a picture of the queen and country and scenes of development. Yeah. We see pictures that celebrate the people who put the pen to paper for a treaty to allow this to occur. Right. That's that's the emphasis, not that we were in control to let it occur with our our finities that it was going to make us something that those people were willing to share it knowing that nobody can control this is everybody invited to attend everybody's invited it's to a attend. free event it right? it's a free event and we will have lots of bison to serve up we will have sausages and burgers and roasts for the elders yeah, everyone is free to come and enjoy some kinship and sit down oh yeah <laughs> and sit down and Reestablish what that kinship really is, and it's usually done in silence when you're eating. It's that contentment with one another. Ah. It's a very basic element. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but sometimes when you're sitting down eating with people, you don't need to say anything. That's often the preferable way for me to eat with people. You know, you know a good silent group because they're becoming kin that way. Yeah, it's a yeah. very, it's a very innate need to sit and consume, not too much, yeah. but sit and enjoy that quality for a few minutes after. Just enjoy it for what it is. And that quality from that animal used to be enjoyed from the Appalachians to the Rockies, from the Arctic to Mexico. This is the hide from last year's bison. It is, from last year's bison. Wow. There was one for last year. There'll be two this year. And do the, do you, where does this, where will this ultimately live, this particular one that we're looking at? We will be smoking, we will be lifting the pipe for this, on the morning of ceremony when we start this year's, Bison feast. We will be sitting on it and lifting pipes, oh. and praying for uh, the continued benefit of that beauty way that it once taught us. Not this time for just native people of the area, for everyone who's native to here now. Mm. That's we're all beautiful. In, we're all in this together now. There's the same. elder brother and the younger brother, and the elder brother cultures are just sitting around waiting for younger brother to become mature, and he is. But you got to wait. Can't rush them. Again, the circle. Again, that circle. From one fire to another. We're just leaving one fire and going off to the next one. Well, even though we don't have fire here, we've completed one circle in having met Impetosh and then Precisely. come right back again. From north to south. It's so wonderful to hear your story. That's a little bit of it. Then you get into... I know. Then you get into visiting 225 countries and DJing for electronic sure. music for the last now 27 years. Now throw me the good stuff. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about that another time. How but, many countries? Mm, two, 224, but I've got to count a few again and again. I've, I've been back there a few times. But, and DJing. Yeah, DJing on electronic music parties when electronic music began. I'm going to just about every continent in the world. I'm pretty sure every one of them. And uh, doing that large outdoor festival thing. There's a chapter two to this podcast. There's a chapter two when I definitely left at 16 after becoming a punk rocker from 16 to 18 in the independent punk rock scene that later turned into the techno scene in Europe that later took me to large festivals that began as 1,500 people that are now 90,000 for 
nine or ten days in most continents of the world. You must know Karen Cochran. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a few names that we could probably shoot back and forth. Then today. we shall continue uh, a part two of this podcast at some point in our future. For sure. Thank you so much, Gary. You're very welcome. With us. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iHeartCulture.ca and SaskCulture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time...